0: Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Joel Chan. Joel is an assistant professor in the University of Maryland's College of Information Studies and Human-Computer Interaction Lab and senior fellow at the Center for Advanced Study of Communities and Information. His research explores systems that support creative knowledge work, particularly ones that are open and sustainable. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Joel, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure.
2: I'm we, looking forward to this.
0: Yeah. Why don't we hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on?
2: Yeah. So uh, my start in this space began in uh, the world of psychology. Uh, so I got my PhD in cognitive psychology, and I was actually interested in learning sciences uh, when i first started how to build uh, interventions and tools to help people learn better and you'll see that color the way i think about things all throughout uh, even though i've kind of strayed from that core topic Uh, but funny story my advisor um, in my phd program didn't have money for the thing i wanted to work on which was uh, peer support for writing and so he said, Well, I've got this grant um, that's going to last for three years, and we're going to work with some engineers and figure out how to make them more creative. If you hate it, uh, we'll get you off right away. If you don't really like it, uh, we'll figure something out on the side. But if you love it, then all's good. And turns out I loved it. Uh, it was really, really cool to think about um, this kind of messy problems in this space of um, sitting engineers down at a search engine and trying to have them think about. What are other ways I can think about problems in creative ways? Um, And at the time, I didn't know that HCI existed. Right. Uh, So it was straight up in psychology, even though it was an interdisciplinary program um, where we had uh, kind of policy people, um, learning scientists, and psychologists all in the same space. Um, I didn't know HCI was a thing um, until my dissertation, uh, where I... Uh, stumbled upon somebody from uh, Carnegie Mellon. So I was at University of Pittsburgh, and he had done a lot of work on design stuff and had visited our department. And it turns out um, he was uh, working in the space of HCI. And it was like, wait, this thing that you're doing, uh, you know, trying to understand how people search for information and building novel interactions to help people find uh, inspirations is is HCI. So I was like, that's cool uh and so he was on my dissertation committee we uh, were looking at um, a platform for innovation contests and studying how um people build on each other's ideas and trying to trace and predict which ideas will do better than others based on uh, what kind of knowledge to be built on um and then i went on to work with him on crowdsourcing stuff i did a postdoc with him for a couple of years at carnegie mellon and then discovered Uh, even broader world of information science where I basically have uh, license to pick whatever theory I like and whatever method I like to study this giant problem of uh, creativity support systems uh, where I think about systems much more broadly than I used to in my PhD where uh, cognitive psychology is very about much about the individual mind, uh, thinking about cognitive mechanisms of uh, discovery and how memory works and things like that. Uh, I broadened it when I went to HCI to think about the interface between uh, an individual and a uh, computer system. And uh, as I've gone deeper and deeper into the specific domain of scientific discovery, trying to uh, support cross-disciplinary innovation and things like that, uh, really started to think about the larger context about, um, you know, there's only so much you can do at the interface level uh, if the underlying structure of the things you're trying to index Um, in terms of papers and uh, patents and things like that is not structured the way that it needs to be for you to be able to interact with it usefully. And so then thinking about um, broader systems of how we build the infrastructure for disseminating knowledge and sharing it amongst people um, as a point of intervention to think about how do we build systems and contexts that we can put people in that enables them to do their best creative work. So along the way, I've picked up uh, you know, a bunch of different things. I've started to dabble in applied machine learning uh, as I, we've been thinking about how to build these tools better, uh, but also picking up uh, theories and uh, concepts and methods from social sciences, uh, thinking about how infrastructure is developed and how uh, people cooperate um, using computers. So that's where I am today. Um, and continue to retain a core focus on the domain of design. So I'm still working with uh, mechanical engineers. Uh, trying to model um, aspects of um, how people solve problems. Uh, but also, increasingly, I'm, I guess I've stumbled into the field of meta science, uh, trying to think about how to make science better. Uh, and there's a subsection of meta science that's not about studying how it is, but uh, kind of meta science, uh, applied meta scientists is the term that we, I guess, call ourselves, um, people building tools like site and connected papers and. Right. Um, all kinds of um, Art. interesting, yeah, a lot, yeah, all kinds of tools to improve the way we think uh, about scientific problems and collaborate. So that's a brief uh, history of where, where I've been and where I'm at and where I am now.
1: So a few years ago, I gave a talk at the Library of Congress for the American Library Association. Yes. And um, so they're in kind of the business of archiving yeah. lots of things. And, and I, was, I proposed this notion that what if you learned how to archive ideas um, uh, as, as the kind of the core element, the, uh, the atom, yes. if you will, of larger concepts. And then I was uh, playing around with what, what exactly is the anatomy of an idea and what, what elements yeah. do you need? to to make it a full idea and then then thinking that if we put all these ideas together then they would all uh bounce off of each other and create new ideas and then um then even if only you know one percent of them rose to the top that would be this rich fertile territory that we could mine for other things um conceptually it makes sense in my head but i'm not sure it works in any other level in in the world (laughs) yeah it's a
2: very uh very compelling notion right like if you were able to uh somehow capture and make available right a bunch of ideas and provide ways for them to intermingle at um higher rates than the kind of straw of (laughs) talking in a conversation, right? Uh, Because right now as we're talking, right, we are sort of trying to construct these um, pictures of what you have in your head and what I have in my head. And there's this kind of bus factor between uh, that's super lossy. And I can't tangibly uh, interact with the ideas that you have. Um, And so in that way, it's limited, right, in terms of what's able to go on between our heads. And so the traditional way this happens is we have to spend a lot of time together. Right and form a collaboration and sort of um, our ideas start to intermingle as we work together a lot more. And then um, uh, then we can start to really make uh, new and interesting stuff out of the uh, kind of intersection of our ideas. And right now, um, you know, that's, that's pretty slow, uh, pretty inefficient. It works really well when it can happen, but it takes a lot of time for people to kind of form these collaborations, build trust and so on. Um, and so it's, it's not a pipe dream though um so in my like i mentioned my dissertation was studying uh, this uh innovation contest platform it was, uh a spin-off from the ideo design firm uh it's called open IDEO. so they built this uh, platform for social innovation um and so people would post uh you know ideas basically on the platform and they had one ontology right so they had like inspirations versus concepts As inspirations would be any fodder for ideas, right? Like user research and analogies and so on. Um, And then concepts would be like, I'm developing this this idea for this platform. And what's interesting is um, they had a mechanism for you to be able to cite ideas. So you can say, I'm reading this thing right now. I'm going to build on it. and can kind of cite that in a new idea. Like a block reference for ideas. (laughs) Exactly, right. (laughs) Uh, There were no backlinks, though, uh, so it was just a one-way kind of thing, but that was like a step up. uh, That's what I exploited for my my research to try to understand, trace the lineage of ideas and so on. Um, And so in that way, it was kind of similar to how we have the ability to cite papers and kind of trace that as well. Um, And a persistent problem in these uh, innovation contest platforms is um, how do you navigate how do you search through how do you kind of trace um, because you're right like one of the I, one of the fundamental problems is how do you represent an idea at a level that's useful right so a lot of these concepts varied very widely in terms of the granularity right some of them are super long like a really really long document right. uh, that actually had like five ideas in them right and so if you cited that idea what are you citing what are you building on? Uh, normally, it's like just one small piece of it, um, and so it became hard to kind of like see the big picture. You have this kind of flat list of ideas, and you, maybe you can sort them by uh, number of likes, number of comments. Uh, maybe you can add some tags to them, but it's too coarse, right? You want to see the structure of the space, right? Where is the white space? Where are the clusters of ideas that we're exploring deeply? Where are the kind of new, interesting combinations? And that's still an open problem uh, in the field, like how do we synthesize? A large number of ideas, so you can see um, the structure of the problem space, and thereby get more insight than simply aggregating a bunch of the ideas. And um, yeah, so that's it's uh, lots of people working on it. It's uh, it's a um, still an open problem, but um, I think the payoff is very large if you can figure that out.
1: Uh, yeah, one, one of the things that we played around with in the past is this idea of if we have flying drones that are flying mm. over cities, um, they're, they're going to start creating, um, as they're surveying the city, they're going to create digital models yeah. of the city. And, and I think this opens the door for search engines for the mm. physical world. Um, as we add more and more sensors to these drones and to the physical surrounding, uh, suddenly we'll be able to search on things. I want something that tastes like this or smells like this or something that has this texture or this, uh, harmonic vibration or this specific gravity, um, or this level of humidity, whatever yeah. it might be, and you'll be able to search on all these different right. attributes. That we don't have to. We don't have to know how the search engine is doing all its work in the background. We just have to know that we're getting the right answer once we put in the query. That's fascinating.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's so many aspects of uh, ideas that, if you can think about them as attributes, right, like what it smells like and so on, um, that that are apparent to humans when they. Uh, Kind of see it, um, but are not available for indexing, as it were, right? Right. Like we have, we've got these like search algorithms and so on, they're very powerful. Um, But like I said earlier, they're fundamentally limited by the structure of the data, right? Like, say, if it's completely unstructured text, uh, that's only text, right? Not multimodal, Uh, you're missing a ton of, of information that say you and I might glean from if we went a brainstorming session together, we have a sense of how the idea feels, where it was in the conversation, how people responded to it. Um, you know, there might be some artifact that um, represents a sketch or a rapid prototype. And um, all that rich um, affordances of the idea are just gone if you kind of compress it into a textual form. Um, unless you're a really skilled <laughs> metaphor writer, I guess. Um, yeah, so in, in that sense, like, I, I do see the connection of like, how do we um, not just find, it's not, not not just about finding the right level of representation, but also thinking about what are all the aspects of ideas that make them uh, fertile, that make them um, useful, that, that people want to search by. Um, it reminds me of a very um, random anecdote of... Um, so, it is, speaking of librarians, uh, one of the projects at my current uh, institution uh, that was famous was this uh, International Children's Library, uh, Digital Children's Library. And during their user research, they found that um, a frequent thing that uh, children would like to search books by was um, the color of the cover, right? Or oh. like the way it made them feel, right? And so, like they ad- added those metadata to books, right? Because that's how. Um, children remember which books they, they enjoyed and so on. Uh, it's like, like that one book with the blue cover that made me feel this way. And so they set up the library so that that was a, a metadata um, field for the books as opposed to just like the author year and so on. Um, so I like the idea of like reimagining all the different ways we can sort of um, skin the cat as it were uh, for these ideas.
0: So, so what do you think an advanced version of a platform like this might look like? Um, you've spent more time thinking about this than almost anybody. So, given the limitations of our current tools and how pressing the problems we're trying to solve with them are, what what do you think will come out of those efforts?
2: Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of different um, angles that we're shooting for, right? Uh, as a as a field, uh, one I think has to do with the being able to provide a sense of global structure, right? So to get a feel for, um, so people I work with, uh, clients um, talk a lot about wanting to know about um, trends and clusters and white space and having some insight into um, sequences of ideas and um, those kinds of things. Um, and so that depends on having insight into the structure of the ideas, but. It, um, platforms that could say, um, you know, ingest, say, ideas from 5,000 people, right? People are kind of like, you put out this huge call for a, a hard problem like the X Prize or something, right? Um, and people put in tons of contributions. You get value from the individual ideas, but sometimes you get almost as much, if not more, value from just understanding the structure of the solution space that gives you a sense of, you know, here are some open problems, here are some promising avenues and so on. Uh, And so platforms that are able to provide that level of global structured insight, um, I think are still somewhat far off, but not uh, not impossible. And that's kind of like one of the big value propositions that uh, people who work on this problem are shooting for. Um, Another aspect of it is um, having ways to uh, connect pieces of ideas that are maybe not sufficient on their own to combine into something bigger. And so this is kind of where the idea of analogy comes in. If, um, say you and I are working on, um, related problems, but we use different language and you have, uh, you've got some solution that I don't, and I've got some insight that you don't. Um, there's a lot of value in a platform being able to figure out that we should talk to each other. Right. And, and specifically about these pieces that we have um, that, that might make sense to come together. And, and so a platform that understands, again, like the, the attributes and aspects of ideas and figures out how they can uh, relate to each other on in non-obvious ways, um, I think is also um, a big
0: value add. So that, that sounds and, like kind of a, a hard problem to solve. So what, what would it mean to parse the attributes of different ideas um, so, yeah, so that you could kind of match them?
2: Yeah, so in I think you you're reading uh, one of the, the papers that uh, that I've been a part of that described the idea. Like one one concrete example is um, ideas often have the attributes of um, it's trying to solve some problem and it has some mechanism, right, for achieving that purpose. Um, so, like for instance, um, one of the problems that uh, I use for experiments is um, how do you generate electricity um, in remote places using only human motion. Right. So the, the purpose of any idea for that problem is going to be generation of electricity, and then it's going to have different mechanisms for it, like right. um, leveraging um, translational motion or translating rotational motion into some kind of uh, you know, flywheel or something like that. Right. Um, so in that sense, like a, if you have an idea like I'm going to propose that we build a thing that um, you know, leverages this accelerometer and so on, Um, it has those kind of sub-attributes of like this is a purpose that it's trying to solve and this is a mechanism that it has. And um, if you're able to, what we've shown is that um, people are pretty good at noticing these things, these aspects of ideas. And they're good enough that we can uh, kind of train lots and lots of people to look at ideas and then uh, kind of label them in terms of these attributes. Like in the product description, this part is talking about what it's trying to do. This part is trying uh, talking about how it works. Uh, If you do enough of those labels, we can train a machine learning model to kind of ingest a product description and then uh, kind of build two um, word embeddings essentially that uh, identify those aspects. And that turns out to be very useful, right? So you can say, um, you know, all of you, uh, if you're working on this problem, here are a bunch of different mechanisms for solving similar problems. Um, So that's that's kind of a concrete uh, example of uh, attributes that. Um, that might
0: turn out to be useful. So I, I was reading that paper and that's uh scaling up analogical innovation with crowds and AI. If anyone's interested in looking into it, it's, it's fantastic. And, and I, I was sort of interrogating the ideas throughout imagining how it might apply to more abstract problem spaces Yeah. because for better or worse, that's just kind of where I'm at. You know, I, yeah. I, I tend not to be thinking about how to generate uh, electricity in rural Kenya. I'm thinking more often right. about like uh, Thomas and I are associated with um a quantum computing startup accelerator, you know? And so yeah. one of the things we're thinking about is like, well, how do you validate uh, companies as they come through? Like how, how do you validate uh, their, their underlying idea, their underlying technology? Like how, how do you yeah. spot that? That seems like a more abstract problem. And I found yeah. the results in the paper very compelling. And I'm sure we'll, yeah. we'll spend more time talking about it in a couple of questions, but I was just wondering if you'd given any thought to more abstract things like that or philosophical concepts, like ideas of justice, like how, how do you promote those things? It, it seems like this system, the the schema mechanism, idea that you have it wouldn't map as well on to problems like that
2: yeah i think you're right right like uh that's uh that that particular schema i think is a uh, instance of the search for intermediate levels of structure right so um what we're reacting to is um, in the early days of kind of good old-fashioned AI, we had these knowledge-based systems where right. um, if you represent the ideas fully in terms of their concepts and relational structure, you could do a lot of things with them, a lot of things. So any any particular concept would, would work well. Um, and so kind of this purpose mechanism schema, I think works well for uh, these kinds of uh, more concrete problem solving questions. Um, I think it's a good uh, open question how this might extend to. Uh, it seems like you're talking about two different axes of generali- generalization, right? One is uh, kind of uh, turning the complexity dial up to like quantum computing, right? So kind of more uh, higher level, complicated ideas. Um, and in that sense, I think the the schema could be extended in principle um, to say, um, you know, if I was thinking about what is the problem that, uh, say, policy policymakers face for trying to uh, control the spread of a pandemic, right? They're trying, and there's kind of underlying abstract um, ideas of trying to uh, persuade, to inform, to influence behavior, to control the spread of something, to balance trade-offs. And um, at that level, people are fairly good at identifying, like they're noticing, like, this is a common schema, right? Uh, So if you're trying to, like this analogy actually was a kind of very explicitly drawn between uh, say uh, how to persuade um, people who uh, suffer uh, from risk of AIDS. um, How do we persuade them to kind of change their risky behaviors? Uh, Kind of draw that analogy to um, how do you persuade people to manage their risk when it comes to to COVID Um, and then they were drawing lessons from what worked and what didn't work, right? So they're able to map, right? The underlying problem structure of how do you get people to change their behavior uh, under situations where risk uh, risk management is is uncertain, um, and then what are some of the solutions that worked and didn't work? The other axis that I I think I hear you saying is kind of uh, you mentioned uh, abstract concepts of justice and things like that. Yeah. Um, that that is fuzzier to me. It's not obvious to me, and I think the first thing I would ask is um, what what you're trying to what would be useful things to do uh, in terms of connecting? Um, What are some uh, useful axes of the the concepts themselves um, that humans pay attention to? Um, And then that would help sort of think about what are some intermediate levels of representation that we could uh, try to uh, recognize uh, in in these ideas. yeah, so I, I'm not quite sure how to think about it yet, um, but that's the angle of attack I would go for. Is like uh, who who is thinking about these uh, abstract concepts of justice and what are they, what are they trying to do, and uh, what is the what are the attributes that they pay attention to that they find important when they talk about it and and things like that. Um, so that's the kind of general process of how we would that's decompose right. this this thing into uh, into a problem that you can solve.
1: Yeah, we've yeah we've we've been doing quite a bit of work lately on systems thinking and um, so uh, every system has an overarching function yeah. to it. And when you start dissecting the the system, you start uh, tearing apart the component parts and the overall purpose of it yeah. and what's the user community and mm-hmm. who does it affect and and then how does changing an interface one way or another affect, uh, how it, uh, what, well, how does it affect the overarching function of it? And, 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 um, and so we, um, we, we have a whole lot of systems in our, you know, in our world that are breaking down right now. Uh, and, uh, so we, uh, we have to think through, uh, how do we modify these systems? How do we make them better? Because they're 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 just not going to be functional for yeah. much longer. Uh, and and I won't I won't name all of them, but there's <laughs> there, there a whole lot of whole yeah. lot of them out there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, definitely. And yeah, uh, yeah. One there's there's couple. I mean, I think there's there's uh there's one bifurcation between. Uh, people who may think that um, the problems that we face in terms of reforming these systems um, have less to do with knowledge and more to do with coordination and collective action. Like we, we have a pretty good idea about what things we can do to fix these systems. Uh, it's just hard to uh, coordinate or get people to agree on those things. And so it's, in that sense, a coordination problem. Uh, and then there's kind of a different way to frame it is like, um, it's just, it's. Uh, For any given system, there are many ways that it could break, and it's hard to understand um, precisely what's going wrong and what are the possible ways that you can fix it. Uh, And in that sense, you kind of frame it as a knowledge problem. Um, And then then you can think about, well, who... um, who understands the parts of the system, even if no single person understands the whole system, and how do we put these together into a useful model of the system that allows us to then say, well, what other systems are similar um, that maybe have overcome these problems in the past? Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, uh, not sure which systems you have in mind and whether any of those have analogs in the past where uh, the problems have been solved. Uh, But if they were, then that would be like a useful thing uh, to do. Uh, Assuming that we don't already know the answers and that we just have to figure out how to coordinate to to implement them.
0: I I find that a really interesting idea, taking people who understand the different parts of a a complex system and sort of merging their understandings together. Like what what tools are available to do that kind of thing today? And and I mean, Rome arguably is one. I'm I'm in Rome Book Club 5 right now and we're kind of exploring, you know, community graphs and stuff like that. But I, I wonder if there's anything you find that compelling in that space.
2: I'll start with the things we know work the best right now, uh, even if they're not the most efficient, right? So uh, one of the very concrete areas where that that played out was uh, in pandemic response that required both virologists and aerosol scientists and epidemiologists to kind of come together and say, okay, um, if we understand that the virus um, has has different sizes, uh, how does that impact the kind of uh, physics of it? And so you have these like aerosol scientists who may not know, may know nothing about viruses, but they know a lot about how uh, kind of these microparticles diffuse in a space. And that's super important, it turns out, for thinking about uh, interventions and so on. Um, so for a while, uh, probably too long in my estimation, uh, there was not a lot of good communication between them. Uh, and then what happened was the National Academy of Sciences convened a bunch of these people and say, let's sit down for one week and hash it out. Right? So that's current I think the current goal standard, like I said, is like um, the the best way we know how to do this kind of let's piece together fragments of understanding that we each have into a coherent whole is to get us together in, in a room and have us uh, talk to each other, hash things out and write stuff together. Um, and so that's that's fine when it works out, right? But um, there's lots of um, barriers to um, finding each other in the first place, right? Um, And so um, economists, they talk about uh, search costs and execution costs of innovation, right? And so the search costs can be uh, surprisingly high, right? So even within the same institution, uh, right now, there's a huge number of uh, connections between people that are just untapped. Uh, And one of my favorite experiments, uh, they, they did a very simple intervention where they brought people together and they randomly paired them up uh into different poster sessions and they found that uh the likelihood that uh, people collaborated who should have collaborated years ago uh even though they were maybe just like one building over in the same university right. but they never knew about each other wow. um and yeah there's another study that uh looked at the impact of construction work on uh french university campus and uh there was a kind of natural experiment for labs who were forced to move around and Uh, there was a huge penalty to um, labs collaborating who are far apart in terms of knowledge disciplines um, when they were forced to move far away from each other. Um, But labs that were pretty much in the same discipline, um, there was no cost uh, to the quality of their work when they were forced to move apart, um, which again, like, speaks to, like, there's something about um, the kinds of interactions that happen face to face that are really, really conducive for this uh, kind of piecing together. That it's not clear to me that it works uh, as well um, in non um, non face to face settings that are asynchronous. Um, and so again, like I think um, systems like Rome um, and others that are attempting to figure out ways that uh, people can externalize some of this knowledge to kind of help each other find. Uh, pieces of it and build on each other, um, I think, are moving in the right direction, right? So Rome to me, is um, the next evolution of the kind of older idea of uh, federations and federated wikis, right, to have this um, different mechanisms for instead of just disseminating ideas and having people upvote and downvote them, um, you provide ways for them to build on each other and allow them to talk about, uh, talk through their ideas. Twitter gets a little bit at this but yeah. it gets uh, there's like kind of a depth limit to it <laughs> that right. uh, that that doesn't quite work and it's also got, uh, I think counterproductive um, attention incentives um, but you can see glimmers of what can happen like a lot of I've received a ton of really useful um, inbounds connections uh, from Twitter uh, over the last year as I've started to engage more um, there's something powerful about um, a network that allows people to kind of share pieces of of
1: knowledge. Yeah, we've we played Yeah, we've we played around with um, this scenario uh, that if somebody were to uh, to create a wearable a wearable AI that that sole mission was to detect mm-hmm. danger uh cuz everybody's um, you know, constantly looking around for what's, uh, what's a possible right. threat to me. Um, and am I, am I in imminent risk here or imminent danger? Uh, and so having an AI that could actually detect everything from a predator to uh, uh, a, a dog with rabies or a tick or um, somebody who's a hacker that's going to hack your computer uh, – being able to detect this full range of possible dangers, I think, is is a real interesting kind of thought experiment to work through. Hmm.
2: There's at any given time, uh, the yeah, my mind immediately goes to uh, if you weren't, if it wasn't as necessary for you to be monitoring uh, so many different things at once. Um, what does that free up in terms of what you're able to do? Um, the, the first thing, the first place my mind goes is um, the what happens to people when they're able to get a handle on, say, um, anxiety, right? Uh, kind of yeah. the mental cycles that are spent, kind of monitoring, uh, you know, different cycles and different uh, vectors of potential threats and so on, and the amount of cycles that are freed up um, if you're able to sort of uh, offload uh, that. That again, that that makes me think of, uh, you know in in a social setting in a brainstorming meeting, for example, uh, psychological safety is super important because it kind of like if you are not constantly, additionally, in addition to thinking about what people are saying, you're trying to monitor the your status in the conversation right. and right and those kinds of things. Like, how does that drag things down? Um, yeah, so it's it's interesting to think about. Like, uh, I'm riffing on it to think about like mechanisms for um, programming or um, shifting our attention or offloading our attention in useful ways.
0: Well it actually dovetails yeah. with a question I was going to ask so your response to my last question was that it's pretty hard to beat getting everybody together in a room and whiteboarding yeah. and talking face to face and I wanted to, yes. to follow up by asking you about how machines might help some of that um, solve some of the problem of asynchronous communication or you know, identifying when two people are talking about the same thing semantically but, but in different terms and uh, if you, you could have a wearable AI that you know maybe isn't scanning, the environment for threats, but it, that is just cataloging all the things you say, right? And, and it's yeah. just breaking those down into concepts and, and is noting that similar sorts of conversations are happening happening elsewhere. I mean, there's huge privacy concerns, but if we just allow ourselves to abstract that away, th- there's some real potential. So you're asking, how does
1: collaboration evolve over the coming years?
0: Yeah, and I mean, there, there are people who seriously put forward the idea that someday every word spoken will be recorded, or, or some huge fraction of them, and it will just be kind of part of what you do. Uh, you, you just you just know that when you talk, it, it will be recorded somewhere, and most of it nobody will ever go through, but if you had the right algorithms, I mean, you could, there's a lot you could do with that, right? You could you could trace sentiment in real time. You, you could almost monitor the spread of, of memes, like you, you monitor the spread of, of pathogens. Uh, you could connect people in interesting ways if they're having similar conversations, or it's like, this person is talking about the same idea using entirely yeah. different words but, yeah. but they are trying to get at the exact same thing Why yeah and are there beads
1: of sweat forming yeah, on his forehead yeah <laughs> right?
2: yeah. Yeah. It, so, yeah does he yeah. have a yeah. knife yeah. does he yeah is he going yeah, to attack to on i want to riff on that last uh that last comment a little bit right so there's like beads and sweat thing uh so one of the things that uh that i think is um there's there's a couple of different ways to think about computer media communication right So, one is uh, uh, a fairly difficult hypothesis to beat, which is that um, face to face is just superior because of the uh, kind of richer channels of of signaling that you can kind of follow. Um, But I think it's really interesting to think about um, how machines can augment um, different channels of information that maybe can go beyond what is accessible to you in a face-to-face setting, right? Uh, so like beats of sweat uh, might indicate, what might indicate, or that the AI might be able to have uh, monitoring the uh, kind of cadence of conversations, right? To get a sense of the energy levels uh, of the conversation, and then maybe kind of suggest um, ambient interventions like, uh, you know, as the room gets really, as the conversation starts to steer towards uh, a place that could be uh, unproductively tense, maybe it, I don't know such a trigger um, ambient lighting that reduces the mood or something like that or uh, maybe um, it helps with uh, people who have trouble reading cues uh, through through zoom for example i was thinking about um, there was a colleague of mine who was working on uh, tools to help international students learn how to read cues better during their teaching and so they had this kind of connect that uh, was able to sense the room and give feedback to the the, the student as they uh, kind of train themselves to uh, to understand like how they were coming across, how the students are reacting, and using that data to kind of talk with uh, advisor uh, to get better at reading these cues. So
1: it um, so it occurs to me that so, the, the the core question is how do we make a virtual virtual communication actually superior to meeting somebody in person? In
0: yeah, I think, it yeah, or I think su- or a, sub- supplementing, like, like making, making virtually mediated communication less arid somehow, like, like making it so that it's more lifelike. Uh, correct. Happens,
2: yeah. yeah, 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 it's. um, Yeah, so I don't know if that's a, I don't think that's a pure AI question, but in a sense, like it is because uh, you need to augment the ability of your uh, sensors, right to uh, kind of pick up on different, uh, not just uh, physical signals, but also to uh, attach, uh higher levels of meaning to them, all right? The difference, the difference between sensation and perception. Um, and so in that sense, I think like uh, developing uh, AI is not just to mimic what humans are picking up on, but also to identify, um, like you said, um, what are some untapped channels of information um, that are not uh, available to human senses uh, that could augment uh, communication in a way that's possible only when you're virtual. That's that's it. I think that's an interesting design prompt, and like to me, that's like uh, a more provocative thing to think about than to say, uh, you know, face to face is always going to be better, and we can only try to match it. And then I think that kind of boxes you in to try to think about how do we replicate face to face communication in a virtual setting. Right. And I think that's that's kind of where a lot of uh, virtual conferences right now are stuck, uh, trying to think about how do we make it like an in person conference instead of thinking what is available to us now that we're not in the same room? Um, How do we, like one of my favorite um, ways of thinking about virtual conferences has been to drop the idea of an intensive three-day conference altogether and just say, what if we um, accepted the fact that we're asynchronous and we're all not able to take all this time off? How do we we build systems that augment this kind of um, ability to distribute your conversations uh, on a longer timescale? Uh, or if we remove the constraint of everybody needing to watch the same Zoom talk right now, um, you know what kinds of interactions um, are are enabled. And that was a philosophy conference, I think, that been, had been online for like three years. Uh, there's a huge <laughs> contrast to. Uh, it's, it's, I, I don't know why the philosophers
0: they, have more time to spend on <laughs> this have kind more of time to spend. They, don't yeah, have, they don't have a business problem they're trying to solve,
2: right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I've been super frustrated with uh, the a lot of virtual uh conference experiences right now right because uh in a sense they're kind of stuck in the first paradigm of trying to figure out you know first face-to-face is the best um, how do we replicate it as opposed to how do we think differently about what's available um in the um virtual setting so i uh
0: so I, uh, it, it would be very disappointing if we didn't spend some time on meta science. And so we just yes. recorded an interview with Jeff Anders. I believe that was the last one we did. And he is at uh, the Leverage Research Institute, which you should check out if you haven't heard of them. And they do a lot of work on meta science, knowledge in society, knowledge production, that kind of thing.
1: And yeah. they
0: wanted to, when they decided to address themselves with the problem of understanding how scientific discoveries arise, they began by studying the history of science. And they're studying the history yes. of electricity now. And right. I I thought this would be sort of an interesting way to come at that same question from a different angle, because you're also interested in that, but you are spending more time thinking about the tooling and the infrastructure and, and how to make those things better. So why don't you just use that as a springboard to, to riff on that area of your research a little bit?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a funny you bring it up because I'm actually doing a, uh, we we literally, uh, two weeks ago, so I'm, I'm working with Matt Clancy on a... Uh, writing project, uh, trying to unpack the different dimensions of um, cross-disciplinary, cross-boundary innovation, um, and trying to kind of bring together three different perspectives, uh, one of which we're missing. So the first one is kind of this like quantitative, um, you know, study a bunch of citations of patents and papers and so on, and try to understand um, how the lineage of an idea uh, of a paper, for example, predicts its, its, um, its impact and so on. And then there's a different kind of uh, area of study where they look at individual inventors um, and scientists in real time. Um, they kind of observe their meetings and so on, embed themselves in using ethnography and so on and try right. to trace what's happening um, without the, uh, I guess, uh, distortion of uh, retrospective uh, bias, uh, but the thing that we're missing that both Matt and I are missing is uh, uh, rich historical case studies, right, of like individual inventions and how, how they were traced throughout history, and so uh, we're both on the uh, progress studies uh, slack uh, and uh, with Jason Crawford yeah, yeah, so we posted it we know that Anton Hall's, uh, House will know about this and so we kind of posted that question there uh, and we got a bunch of book recommendations um, but yeah, it's uh, I think where I want to go with that is something I think a lot about is uh, take for instance, there's a pretty reliable um, empirical finding about the trade-off between levels of distance. So um, you know, in order for you to have high impact, uh, for example, this paper by uh, by Uzi and and others, uh, I think it's called atypical Combinations and Scientific Impact," uh, where they trace. Um, you know, what profile of citations uh, predicts whether you're going to be a big hit of a paper, right? Uh, and it's uh, the answer is um, having uh, some very unusual combinations, but also a lot of conventional combinations, right? So, this idea of like having some novelty but not too much novelty or some distance but not too much distance there's, there's that's a actually theory
0: there's a theory in the uh, the philosophy of religion that part of what helps religions yeah. spread is if is if they are just new enough or just unbelievable enough people are like yeah. well is that serious and then and then it kind of like yeah. occupies yeah. more and more of the space in your mind until eventually yeah. you know you're you're converted two years later
2: yeah yeah uh yeah i think that, that's 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 a that's kind of a similar similar idea for sure um something I, so as a tool builder right something I think a lot about is uh, say we were able to um, you know we really looked into this and this kind of showed up again and again and again and again um, I think a lot about how much of that is a um, kind of historical accident of the way that um, knowledge institutions are structured right now right right because you could plausibly say um, the reason that you need to have a some novelty but also some conventionality is to placate uh, reviewers or your peers right so they don't dismiss you out of hand but the conventional combinations are actually epiphenomenal like they're not important for the idea at all you're just it's a chore you have to go through because we because of the way that society is structured right now and for that i really i'm super curious about like a historical perspective on that kind of what i appreciate about history is that it helps us understand that the way things are right now is not always the way things were and not always the way things will be, right? And so like, uh, I think it's f- <laughs> paradoxically for some technologists who build uh, systems, uh, they all kind of like take the system as given, right? Like, let's right. see, we, we understand this empirical regularities, so we're going to design ways to um, help people encounter ideas that are kind of a mix of conventional and novel. Um, but. In the back of my mind, what I really want to know is if we combine all these historical case studies and try to look for variations, uh, can we think about different ways that we could structure society um, where these this empirical regularity will not show up? Then we can think about like different kinds of interventions, right? How do we structure, um, say, the structure of a uh, knowledge institution such that you you just you don't need to go through the facade of making these conventional combinations and talking about things um in in conventional ways you can just kind of go at it Um, you know is it like a limitation of the filtering idea filtering system you know that kind of thing Um, and yeah so so man i talked a little bit about that and that's something i wonder a lot about is uh, if we take that long lens um how do we see how might we see things differently that's something i think a lot about in terms of meta science right there's it's, it's it's often very tricky to tease apart uh, kind of the is from the ought, right? And um, the descriptive from the prescriptive, right? right. Um, because you can't run randomized control trials on all of science. Uh, and then if you uh, if you get a question with simulations, right? Like what if the reviewing system was le- like 5% less noisy? Or what if uh, prestige didn't matter quite as much or things like that? Um, then you kind of have these counterfactuals that you can compare. But then it's very plausible to say there that there's actually no connection whatsoever between that little model that you built uh, of, of the simulation and the way that science works at, in, in reality. Um, and so what I want is to be able to kind of join that kind of how could things be different thinking from the simulations with any data, right? That's right. able to, um, and that, that's what keeps me at night because I don't want, I, I'm worried that um, you know, maybe we're stuck in the local optimum, right? The way science works right now works well enough. And maybe there's like really much better ways of doing things that we just don't know about because we, we don't kind of take the historical lens to to question how things what could be think, different. What are, well,
0: what, what are some ways you think that science might be the improved? Like the, the production of scientific knowledge might be improved?
2: Yeah, so right now I'm uh, thinking the obvious answer to your question, right, one answer to your question is uh, a lot of people are uh, kind of upset about the uh, PDF and the paper being the central means of communication of scientific knowledge, right? Uh, <laughs> right. And and so it, you can very plausibly say, well, well, what if that weren't the case, right? What if um, you know there was like really robust infrastructures of sharing computable knowledge, right? Like where uh, instead of uh, everybody compressing this complex knowledge, uh, structured knowledge into this unstructured narrative. They additionally, um, you know, did semantic publishing, right? Like they they drew from ontologies and they talked about like, instead of saying, we studied these rats, you would like kind of reference the ontology, um, you know, Wikip- wikidata or some ontological um, label for that rat. And so that allows us to kind of build this knowledge graph uh, in real time. And then you have this like, kind of living systematic reviews that update um, as new findings are added to the literature, as opposed to people having to kind of spend uh, hours and hours and hours to try to extract it from PDFs and then do it all over again. Um, so that's one, one way that I think um, uh, I think you can think about, uh, imagine scientific communication being different. Uh, like Where I think that connects with is um, we have these um, ideas about the growing burden of knowledge, right? right.
0: Um,
2: we've, uh, ben Jones has been kind of tracking um, a lot of different aspects of this in terms of um, the age of first invention or the age of first significant contribution in Nobel Prize that's growing over time, right? There's this like intuition that um, it's taking longer and longer to reach the frontier of a field uh, in order to make a contribution. Right. And um, extrapolating that... Uh, into the future is unsettling. <laughs> right. Like, at, at some point, are we going to like stop being able to pick the low hanging fruit? Then what then, right? If the uh, if in order to advance the field uh requires too much time to get to the edge of it, um,
1: so you know, so bad? all yeah. Nobel Prize winners are 150 years old, then yeah, I know, right? Like,
2: no. maybe maybe if our aging technology keeps up, <laughs> right, we'll be okay, right? right. right. Like, Moore's Law, like Moore's Law for humans. <laughs> so, so it occurred to me um, that.
1: Um, Once we actually form a base on the moon or on Mars, that virtually none of our existing systems for weights and measurements and time make sense on those other planets that um, that mm. the communication between us on Earth here, who we've established everything here based on what makes sense here, it doesn't make sense on the moon or on Mars or any other planet that might be out there. Um, so it seems like that's when all of our, uh, kind of our staid communication systems start breaking down.
2: That could be the natural experiment, right? Once we, <laughs> in if in the next... Uh if in our lifetimes uh, we're able to kind of establish uh, colonies in different places that have to restart society from scratch i think that would be yeah interesting to think about um, how things could be different Um, yeah there's another aspect of um, how science could be different that i've been thinking a lot about lately right so um, we've got these um, i mentioned these simulation studies right Um, that try to simulate uh, different structures of science and one of the parameters that turns out to matter um in surprising ways is the proportion of um for lack of a better word careerists right so there's like the truth-seeking impulse which may or may not be correlated with um the careerist what i need to do to advance in my career as a scientist right now to get publications and um there's Plausible data that matches my experiences in terms of uh, particular biases towards, um, in a sense, the worst of all worlds. Uh, doing mostly incremental work, but dressing it up as novel um, and not actually doing it in, in a useful way. Uh, not everywhere, uh, but uh, these simulation studies try to understand like how robust is the scientific system to what proportion of careerists, right? So how much how much of the people need to be truth seeking, uh, who will spend the requisite time to really um, do the experiments right and pre-register and do the theory building um, instead of submitting the paper to get the next publication um, like I was <laughs> I was speaking to this uh, student uh, uh, some I think last year and he mentioned something that that kind of haunted me um, I was like would it be great if we made it easier for people to do lit reviews before they write their pro- uh, start their project uh, to really understand the problem he was like nobody does that Why would you want that? You would just, the whole reason for doing late reviews is so you can know what papers to cite so you can get your publication past the reviewers. And that's, it haunts me to think about what proportion of scientists are doing that versus, um, you know, trying to, um, when the incentives for publication versus um, truth-seeking conflict, they choose uh, truth over science. And um, I've noticed that um, reception to m- my ideas about meta science and how we can structure the way that we say engage with the literature uh, differently in ways that may be more laborious. Um, I tend to get a lot more reception from uh, people outside the academy, uh, so independent researchers, uh, nonprofits, profits um, yeah, not, non-academic, uh, para-academic research labs, um, people who advise governments, and so on. Um, and it distresses me how often I hear, um, you know, from, uh, scientists in academy, I just don't have time to do that. Like nobody has time to sit down and actually think about what literature says before we do something. To actually understand uh,
0: what the, the state of the field is like, we, we don't have time to do that.
2: We don't have time to do that. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> people say this, uh, unironically and, and it is strategically wise, right? Uh, at least in the short run. Um, and so, Something I've wondered about as a prompt was, um, you know, right now science is mostly a career, right? So like it's a it's a it's a career you can go into that um, puts food on your table, and I think about the correlations between that and say what happens to artists when they're uh, they have to produce art for for money as opposed to just art itself, and I wonder about how science would have advanced differently if we had a different portion of, for lack of a better word career scientists versus amateur scientists? Like what if you made it a lot easier for, um, there's tons of people who want, who have, like yourself, right? Uh, Who have very strong interest in particular fields. And right now, um, the barrier to entry to advancing the field is very high because uh, not not even just like knowledge, but institutionally, if you're not affiliated with a university, um, it's hard to figure out how to publish stuff. And in that sense, like a huge swath of, Amateur, I mean amateur, not in a pejorative sense, but they're not like, right, um, who um, have the very desirable quality of not caring if their answer is publishable, but caring a lot about whether they're correct. So uh,
0: I, I think maybe we're we're seeing a, a bit of a change in that direction. It's, yeah. it's very hopeful, I, I would argue. So yeah. I, I think there's this this class of kind of public facing intellectuals that you, you're seeing emerge in in an yeah. age where it's relatively easy to start a blog or a YouTube yeah. channel or a Substack. And I'm thinking of yeah. like Andy Matashak or Michael yeah. Nielsen or, or, or people yeah. like that who yeah. uh, have developed a huge following. And yeah. you know Nielsen in particular, he, he's a former academic, but a lot of what yeah. he does nowadays is just riffing on. Different states of matter and how you might be able to set up manufacturing for yeah. for things like that, or or he d- he does a lot with tools of, of for thought and cognitive mm-hmm. media and things like that. So I yeah, to, um, I wonder if that's beginning to change.
1: Yeah, we in our last podcast we discussed the fact that you can no longer buy a chemistry set. That uh, my when I was a kid, that chemistry sets were always a big thing for young kids to experiment with and mm. try things, but uh, because they were mm-hmm. apparently a little bit dangerous too, so. Yeah, they they've taken they've taken them all off the market. So. <laughs> when,
0: when, when parents didn't care as yeah, much about their children. Your old your only yeah. chemistry set yeah. is uh yeah. can
1: of Coke and Mentos or something like
0: that. Right. <laughs> right,
2: right. Yeah. I mean, think about like all the innovation that came from, you know, people messing around with computers in the garage, right? Like, you know, they're not necessarily doing they're hobbyists in the non-pajorative sense of the word. Uh, so I, I would like to like simulate alternative futures where you vary the mix of uh you know career traditional like science lab uh, work versus like in a certain sense like part of the uh, that's the premise of citizen science right is yes, exactly. uh, try to broaden uh, participation but um, in, in many cases I think it devolves quite easily into citizens as data collection helpers.
0: For yeah, scientists
2: who are doing the real science right? right and i think that just scratches the tip of the iceberg in terms of like i was talking to this uh this person who um works with uh, families of patients with uh, a progressive disease uh who are super motivated to participate in the scientific aspect of um trying to advance understanding of the disease because um, their family member uh, because the disease progresses slowly enough it's plausible that if they were to help with the research there's a chance that you know a cure could be developed in their lifetime, and so there's this huge amount of energy, strong truth-seeking incentives, you know, to to really understand what's going on. And I don't think we quite have the institutions to deal with that yet. Like we don't know how to like figure out those collaborations. Uh, quite as much in the sense I'm stumbling into it right now, um, working with uh, people in the tools for thought space, right? So people who don't care about publication, but they care about um improving their productivity or improving their ability to come up creative ideas. Uh and it, I want to publish with that, right? Because like if you come up with good ideas, um, you know, they uh they deserve they we, we should know, the scientific community should know about the advance that's come about from even if they're not like affiliated with some university. Um and I agree with you. I think there's some some hopeful science yeah, I, I,
1: uh, I've been, I've been speculating that yeah. um well, I, I wrote up this concept paper a while back on this idea of, of the terabiter. It's a person that would, whose role in society would be to go out and to upload a terabyte of new information every day, and they they would be armed with cameras all over their body and lots of sensors, and then. Everywhere they went, they'd just be absorbing all the information around them. And um, and then that would go into this massive database that we could use to search later. Um, which, that was uh, kind of a pie-in-the-sky uh, idea. So we uh, we haven't gone there yet.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, to riff on that, like, um, there's and one of the encouraging signs is... Um, Well, so encouraging and discouraging. So uh, distill.pub was like a really uh, exemplary effort. They kind of understood the idea of research depth of like, um, you know, we we are publishing all this information and there's not enough people who are trying to make it accessible. The user interface for ideas is is very poor. And so their thing was, where are the distillers? Where are the people whose job it is to synthesize to, to riff on the idea of uploading a terabyte of information every day, um, do the job of synthesizing every day so that people like Trent and Joel could find each other even if they weren't you know, connected to the same discipline. Right now, I don't know who those people are. So Matt Clancy is trying to do some of that, right? He's, he's got his like wonderful blog where he's trying to synthesize information. The discouraging thing is that this still uh, kind of shuttered its doors um, recently uh, in part because um, there's a lack of, um, a sustainable means for, for that uh, to happen as a career. Um, and so I think um, I would like to see uh, a greater diversity of kinds of contributions to uh, to science um, that are uh, different from just like, you know, going to the, um, you know, PI track to get a bunch of grants, turn on a bunch of publications, um, but um, kind of diversifying the portfolio as it were of contributions right. to, uh, to knowledge advancing. Uh, I think that's That's something I really hope uh, becomes more and more commonplace. I think there's a lot of experimentation to be done there.
0: Um, Yeah. Well, fantastic. I think that's a relatively upbeat note to end on. Thanks so much for (laughs) chatting with us today, Dr. Chan. And I wish you the best of luck in your future endeavors. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks.
2: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.